You're listening to the Hollyview Podcast, a message from Hollyview Church in Damascus, Oregon. We hope this message encourages and challenges you in your daily walk with Christ, but doesn't replace the importance of gathering together each week with a local community of people that follow Jesus. It's together that we are being shaped by the gospel, rooted in God's word to share God's grace and truth. Thank you for listening to the Hollyview Podcast. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Um, count it a blessed opportunity to open God's word with you this morning. <clears throat> Have any of you noticed that the word literally now means figuratively? It's crazy. Literally used to mean actually and without exaggeration. Now, it's often used precisely for exaggeration. Maybe, maybe you texted a friend a great joke. Uh, if you're ever in a fight with a gang of clowns, go for the juggler. <laughs> and admittedly, a very fine joke. Your friend texts back, LOL, I'm literally dying over here. <laughs> what? You actually died from this joke? No, of course not. They're emphasizing for effect. I've heard someone say, you've probably heard someone say, I was literally scared to death. No, you weren't. Maybe you've heard someone exclaim after putting the triple X hot sauce on their taco, my mouth is literally on fire. No. There aren't flames shooting out of your mouth right now. Uh, but th this phenomenon is nothing new. I did a little bit of research, and by that I mean I did a Google search. And uh, it turns out that Mark Twain is guilty of this uh, definition switch. He wrote that Tom Sawyer was literally rolling in wealth. So, like Scrooge McDuck, he had a swimming pool full of gold coins. It's out there doing the backstroke. Uh, Mark Twain was not alone. F. Scott Fitzgerald claimed that the great Gatsby uh, literally glowed. James Joyce, Jane Austen, even Charles Dickens are all guilty of this definition switch. But I don't want to talk any more about literally. I want to talk about Hope. The word hope has been similarly hijacked in that it has been drastically changed. The modern world has taken hope and fundamentally, literally altered it to the point where it barely resembles the word that we read in the Bible. Hope, to the biblical writers, is more of a noun than a verb. They implore us to put our hope in God. And what they mean is confidently expect God to do what he has said, what he has promised to do. Confidently expect God to do what he has said, what he has promised to do. Hope in the Bible is very similar to trust. And it's the initial step of faith. 
In fact, the great definition of faith in the book of Hebrews ties those two words, hope and faith, together nicely. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is hoping in God. And hope in God means, I believe God is good. I believe God has forgiven me of my sins. I believe that Jesus, through his death on the cross, has taken my sin and given me his righteousness. I believe Jesus is coming back for me to take me to glory. I believe I will live forever with him in paradise. That's hope. But hope has changed. When we use the word hope today, there is uncertainty attached to it. A kind of cross your fingers, wishful thinking. For example, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. What do I mean when I say that? I mean, I have plans to work in the yard, and it sure would be nice to not be wet and miserable. But the weatherman said, there's a 20% chance of rain, and this is Oregon, so it's for sure going to rain. But maybe it won't uh, when I have to be outside, right? Something like that. Uncertainty. Or another example. I hope the Seahawks win another Super Bowl. I would really enjoy that a lot. It was pretty great being so good for so long, but are those days over? I hope those days aren't over, but we're going to have to wait and see. Again, uncertainty. Or how about, I hope this pandemic ends soon. It will end, but it's still uncertain how soon that will be. For my younger friends this morning, I hope I do well on that test. You've studied, you've prepared, but who knows how it'll go once you sit down and the teacher hands you that test. Again, uncertainty is now built into the word hope. Christian hope, the hope in the verse we're going to study today, is certain and rock-solid sure, and a confident expectation. There is no uncertainty in biblical hope. So when you hear me say hope, and I'm going to say it about 82 more times, know which hope I'm talking about. Confident expectation with zero uncertainty. I have just one verse to explore this morning. It's found in Romans 15, and it's verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And I want God to work this verse out in us. More than understanding the context or the background or even the content of this verse, I want God to do this verse in us. Let's pray together. Oh God of hope, would you come and would you fill us and would you do the work that you spoke about in your word? Would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law? And would you be our help and our guide? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, here's where we're going this morning. We're going to survey the book of Romans. That's uh, background. 
in order to properly understand the weight and the glory and the wonder of this benediction found in Romans 15, 13. And then we'll ask, now what? And I think this slide is up there, Elijah, this outline. We'll ask, now what? What does it mean for us today with our boots on the ground in Boring, Oregon in 2021? Now, Romans 15, 13. I want to be really careful dealing with this one verse. This verse doesn't live in a vacuum. Verses don't live alone all by themselves. This verse is a link in a chain. It's one sentence, which is part of a paragraph, which is part of a chapter contained in a letter written by an apostle to a particular group of people. So I don't want to grab this verse like a magic lamp and rub it and have the Romans 15, 13 genie come out and grant all our wishes. I want to examine the verse where it lives, and I want it to encourage us as Paul intended. Paul had a purpose in mind when he wrote to the Christians in Rome and when he wrote this verse, and I want to get to that purpose. So let's zoom out for a moment and consider this entire letter, and then we'll be able to focus rightly on this magnificent verse. The Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans is the most complete summary of the gospel message and Christian doctrine in the Bible. It's the first letter we come to in the New Testament after the Gospels and Acts. Uh, it's first not simply because it's the longest, although it is. It's first because it is chief. It is first in importance. Of the book of Romans, Martin Luther says, this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily, as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. The theme of the letter is found in chapter 1, in verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul spends the next 11 chapters explaining and proving and unpacking the gospel, the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And that's what the word gospel means, good news. The good news, however, begins with bad news. Can we go forward a couple, Elijah? Oh, you're with me. My bad. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Chapter 2, more bad news, shows that Gentiles and Jews are under God's righteous judgment due to their ungodliness and unrighteousness. And this argument reaches its peak in Romans 3, verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. And then verse 23, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. 
The good news begins with very bad news. Wrath of God. Righteous judgment. None is righteous. All have sinned. So what are we to do? We are all unrighteous. We are all sinners. Where are we to go? Verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But if we keep reading, we get to verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Finally, the good news is good news. We are justified. That is, we are made righteous. We are literally righteousified by grace through the work Jesus did on the cross. We have sinned, and that's a problem. We have fallen short, and that's a problem. But thanks be to God that he sent Jesus to make us righteous. Then chapter 4, it shows Abraham as an example of justification by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Four freedom chapters follow that. Now that we are justified by faith, we are free. In chapter 5, we have freedom from wrath. The wrath of God from chapter 1 is no longer our problem. This is Romans 5, 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Chapter 6, we have freedom from sin. All have sinned and fallen short, but we believers are now free from sin. Romans 6, 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Chapter 7 shows our freedom from the law. The law can only condemn for it reveals our sinfulness. But now, verse 6, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. And then chapter 8, freedom from death. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And then verses 38 and 39, nothing, not even death, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Freedom from wrath, sin, law, and death. Chapter 9 shows God's sovereign choice in saving his elect people. Chapter 10 is Paul's argument that even though Israel does not believe, the gospel has not failed. Chapter 11 explains how Jews and Gentiles can be saved. Everyone is saved through faith. That's 11 chapters of gospel and doctrine. 11 chapters of righteousness and grace and freedom Paul, at this point, switches to application. How do these gospel truths affect how you and I live? Chapter 12 deals with our overall conduct. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Chapter 13, our submission to authorities. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Chapter 14 is the gospel's effect on relationships with fellow believers. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And chapter 15, look out for each other. Welcome one another. Look to please each other. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So that's how we get to Romans 15. Paul's talking about living peacefully in the church, not passing judgment, not causing a brother or sister to stumble, 
bearing with one another. Paul ends the section of practical application of the gospel with this glorious benediction. A benediction is where Paul is talking to you and at the same time asking God to do something for you and in you. He's praying with his eyes open, looking at you, talking to God and to you. All right, now we're at Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's begin with the God of hope. How do we know the God of hope? Or how do we know that our God is the God of hope? Peek up in Romans, 14, in Romans 15 at verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. The Bible is for our encouragement and hope. Specifically, it is the God of hope revealed in scripture that gives us hope. Paul makes this point by quoting David in verse 9. Verse 9 is a quotation from Psalm 18. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. David knew that God loved the Jews, but God's love and God's plan were not restricted to the Jews. Gentiles, too, would glorify God for his mercy. And that is hopeful to us. That means we Gentiles are included in God's plan. Paul then quotes Moses. Verse 10 is from Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Again, God has shown mercy also to the Gentiles. And we see this way back in Deuteronomy, and we have hope. Third, Paul quotes Isaiah. Verse 12 is from Isaiah chapter 11. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. The root of Jesse will come. His name will be Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. And in him will the Gentiles hope. Ours is the God of hope. Page after page of scripture, we meet the God of hope. This God who did not compromise his righteousness, but made a way for us to be with him through the life and death of his son, Jesus. This God who loved us while we were still sinners. This God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This is the God of hope. From the very beginning, he is the God of hope. Go back to Eden, to paradise, and think about the moment Adam and Eve sinned. God visits them and brings hope. Genesis 3.15, I, God, will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Adam and Eve sinned. And the wages of sin is death. And Adam and Eve deserved to die. But they did not die right away. They had offspring. And one of those offsprings, offsprings, offspring was the snake crusher, Jesus. From the very beginning, man fell short and God met him there and brought hope. 
And that's Genesis 3. That's the very beginning. The rest of the Old Testament is the God of hope working out this plan. Ours is the God of hope. May the God of hope fill you. What are you full of? I'm talking about in your heart. What's your heart full of? Bitterness? I named that one first because that's what my heart is often filled with. I feel wronged or slighted, and I will hang on to that and be filled with bitterness. But how about you? Do you tend toward despair? Or is your heart full of anxiety? Or loneliness? Or hopelessness? Or maybe your heart's empty, and the pain is so great that you just don't feel anything anymore. Whatever it may be, there is hope. May the God of hope fill you. And as he fills you, he replaces those lesser things with greater things, namely joy and peace. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Joy and peace come hand in hand with Jesus. When the angel appeared to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth, do you remember what the angel said? I bring you good news of great joy. Joy. Jesus has been born. Let's celebrate. That same night when the choir of angels sang out in praise to God, do you remember what they sang? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Peace. Jesus has been born. We can rest in him. Jesus brings joy and peace. Joy and peace are an interesting pair to consider together. They're not quite opposite, but they do cover a wide spectrum. Think of a joyful person on this side. All praise and expression and happiness. And now think of a peaceful person on this side, all calm and worry-free. Both are great states to be in, and we need both. We need both in the church. We need both in our families. We need both in us individually. And the God of hope fills you, not with some joy and peace. Notice, all joy and peace. Being full of all joy and peace means there's no more room for those negative things. All joy and peace are yours. All you have to do is believe. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Joy and peace are yours as you believe, as you continually believe. Joy doesn't come first. Peace doesn't come first. Belief comes first. Faith comes first. As you believe, you are filled with joy and peace. This believing is active and it's ongoing. It's daily. But believe what? Believe the God of hope raised Jesus from the dead. Believe the God of hope has saved you by his grace. Believe the God of hope made you alive together with Christ Believe that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Believe 
that God is good. Believe that God is for you. Believe that nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. Believe the gospel. Believe the letter to the Romans. Every verse, every phrase, every word of this entire book. Believe so that you will abound in hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Being full of joy and peace results in abounding hope and overflowing in hope. Here's where the person next to you comes into the story. As those lesser things in your heart, the bitterness, the despair, the anxiety, the lust, the anger, the hatred, as those lesser things are replaced, joy and peace move in and you overflow in hope. As you overflow, you affect those around you. The whole idea of abounding is that it reaches over and beyond you and touches those around you. Don't keep the joy and peace and hope to yourself. Share it. Overflow with it. Imagine yourself as a sponge. As God fills you with joy and peace, squeeze that sponge so that you abound in hope on those around you. If you don't squeeze that sponge, what happens? Sponges get funky. They get nasty. (laughs) Squeeze that sponge. Spread your hope with those around you. Be a spreader of joy and peace. Abound in hope. Your neighbor needs to know the source of your hope. Your coworker needs to know the source of your hope. Overflow with hope. Abound in hope. Finally, God works this out in you, not as you try harder to be more joyful, not as you work at being more peaceful. God works this out in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The power of the Holy Spirit. I have two kinds of Holy Holy Spirit power in mind. Creation power and the power to raise the dead. The Holy Spirit was there at creation, hovering over the face of the waters, bringing order out of chaos. And... The Holy Spirit is there, raising Jesus from the dead. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you, is Romans 8, verse 11. The Holy Spirit has the power to create in you joy and peace. The Holy Spirit has the power to raise your dead heart to life. That same Holy Spirit power will overflow you with hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. If you are empty, may the God of hope fill you. If you are depressed, may the God of hope fill you with joy. If you are anxious, 
May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. If you are bitter and angry or proud and arrogant or lustful or stuck in besetting sin, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. There is hope for you. If you are hopeful, may the God of hope fill you to overflowing. And if you don't know Jesus, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe. Friends, hope is available. Ask for it and believe. Now what? Boots on the ground, right? What are we to do with this? Three things. Number one, ask for it. Turn Paul's prayer into a personal plea. Say, God of hope, fill me with joy and peace. Ask for it. And number two, believe. Believe the God of hope, the source of all hope. Believe that he will do for you what he said he will do. Search the scriptures with confident expectation that God will fill you with hope as you believe. That's what the scriptures are for, that we might have hope. Believe he will fill you with joy and peace. And then, as joy and peace cause you to overflow with hope, believe for more joy and more peace and more hope. It's a never-ending cycle intended to sustain us until either the end of our days or Jesus returns. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. And then, when God does this for you, number three, abound in hope. Tell the world of the hope that you have. Overflow onto those around you and spread your joy and peace with the rest of us. Be known for your hopefulness. God will do this for you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you fill us? Would you remove the lesser things and fill us with the greater things, the love and the joy and the peace and the hope that comes from you? We can ask this with confident expectation because you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all. How will you not also with him graciously give us all things? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the Hollyview Podcast. Please join us for our worship service every Sunday morning at 1030. We're located on Southeast 257th Avenue, just off Highway 212 in Damascus, Oregon. And you can find us online at hollyviewchurch.com. Thank you for listening to the Hollyview Podcast.